Okay, first off, a lion swimming in the ocean. Lions don't like water. If you placed it near a river or some sort of fresh water source, that makes sense. But you find yourself in the ocean, 20-foot waves, I'm assuming off the coast of South Africa, coming up against a full-grown 800-pound tuna with his 20 or 30 friends, you lose that battle. You lose that battle nine times out of 10. And guess what? You've wandered into our school of tuna, and we now have a taste of lion. We've talked to ourselves, we've communicated and said, you know what? Lion tastes good. Let's go get some more lion. We've developed a system to establish a beachhead and aggressively hunt you and your family. Ooh, corner your pride, your children, your offspring. Hello, friends, and welcome to another <laughs> episode of Have You Seen This? These quotes get longer and longer each episode intro. <laughs> I edited that one down. This is, of course, the podcast equivalent of a late-night Donald Trump tweet. Back, of course, when the floppy head maniac was actually allowed to use it. Joining me, as always, the Don Jr. and Ivanka of the podcast world is Paulie B and Mercer on the dance floor. Hey chaps. Hey Ben, how you doing? How's everybody doing? We all okay? Hey Ammon, how you doing? How many of these quotes do we need to listen to before Twitter bans you? <laughs> oh, getting banned by Twitter is on my bucket list. <laughs> and with another episode comes another exceptional guest. The last time I spoke to this man, I'm pretty sure we were propping up a bar in the very small hours of the morning in a conference somewhere in the UK. Whether you've worked in distribution, <laughs> exhibition, programming, you name it, you'll be very well aware of this legend. It's Andy Bloody Turner. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Great to see you all. And you. And bringing some international spice to the podcast all the way from Finland. Thank you so much for joining us. That's right. No, that, that's great. Absolutely. Helsinki. Uh, and the time. there's a time difference. Did, were you aware of that? I think you're living in the future, aren't you? No, it's 1984 here. Uh, <laughs> it's, seriously, it's crazy. Fantastic. So we ended last podcast with a question, which means I start this one with the same question. So whilst filming 2002's 28 Days Later, for the London scenes, the police would close the streets for exactly one hour for filming. The production team knew this would piss off commuters and clubbers trying to get home. What trick did Daniel Boyle use to get around this? Daniel Boyle? Danny Boyle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know him, but I think he goes by Danny. Only if you know him well. In the UK, we call him Danny. Yeah. <laughs> is this answer, is it something that you would never guess? Or is it a sensible answer? It's probably a fairly common trick. That's interesting, because I was under the impression, Daniel Boyle, for it is he, Sir Daniel Boyle, I thought he set up cameras on timers to capture the streets empty. So he wasn't actually blocking off any roads. But apparently, apparently not. He did do some street filming. Exactly at 4am, he closed the streets down. And he had to start filming like literally at four o'clock and five seconds to get as much footage as he could in that one hour time slot. Okay, Paul? Absolutely no idea. If it's something to placate people, bacon butties? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Did he feed them? I, don't, I have, genuinely have no idea. Did he, like last podcast, did he use asbestos <laughs> around the perimeter? I will tell you the answer. So he employed a bunch of incredibly hot women, apparently including his own daughter, to speak with the drivers and the people went to get home. And apparently it worked a charm. There was absolutely no resistance to these ladies' requests to just wait an hour whilst the roads are closed. That was his trick. Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. 2002 was a different time, chaps. <laughs> it, it was. It certainly was. Yeah. That's gross. 
men are great. <laughs> it wasn't very tolerable when, you know, you read the bit about hot women. And then you read he used his own daughter to also make such requests. So that was his trick. He used hot women. Well done, Hammond. You bested us. What's the score now? Well, if we're starting again for the new year, it's 1-1. Are we? I never signed off on that. Well, I did because I was losing badly last year. So it's one all in 2021. <laughs> we are moving. one all. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. So on with the show then. And our regular show pre-start is our big picks from the small screen. And it's a highlight of two or three things we've watched or streamed outside of the two films in review. And we love to start with our guest. So Andy, what's oh. been keeping you entertained during lockdown three? Okay, so I said this year, the most recent thing I watched was WandaVision, which is the first Marvel Disney Plus produced series. It's it's quite surreal because it's set in black and white, 1950s, suburban comedy setting, a little bit like I'd remember something like Bewitched. But there's something unsettling about it in terms of there's something with a twist. So the fact that we've only watched the first two episodes, it hasn't really revealed much yet. It's, it's almost like watching the first five minutes of a Twilight Zone movie. So I think it's too early to comment on it yet, but I can imagine if you're a Marvel Avengers fan, you you would have expected something completely different to what you're watching. But then I, th- I think that's what's part of its charm is it's it's just something completely different. But by the end of the series, I guess it's something you can probably go back and watch again and will appreciate it far more with its undertone setting. I really enjoyed it. It's interesting to see where it's going to go because it has a massive impact on what's going to happen in the MCU in the films as well if they go this particular storyline that it potentially could be linked to. So yeah, if, if they go there. But I, I really enjoyed it. It's very, very different. Yeah. Falcon and the Winter Soldier is probably going to be more along the lines of what MCU fans will, would probably expect to see. But I, I really enjoyed it. I think there's a huge amount of potential to do something yeah. really strange and really different with it. Uh, and if, as I say, if we do go ultimately with potentially where this storyline might go, it's massive. I think it's a huge amount of potential. The attention to detail is a big thing here, regardless of the undercurrents that are at play in the further story of those two characters. Just the way that it's shot, the way that they've meticulously recreated that I Love Lucy 50s sort of sitcom feel, right down to the fact that the superpowers that they have that you've seen in the films, they're translated to the techniques available at the time and they shot it in front of a live studio once as well the commitment to it and just love the fact that they've been given this room to do that disney plus gives them the opportunity to explore these different genres in a way they've never really done before it was absolutely incredible yeah and it was right nice paul bett and his comedy chops so good really genuine out loud laughs they both play it so real they're so good both actors in this and it was just nice to go back to that relationship that intimacy that they both had in the movies because obviously we know that one of them doesn't make it to the end of end game so Spoiler. Uh, it, it was a wonderful i didn't say who uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was really different and fresh and original so um kudos to them for for trying something so bold cobra kai season three yes. obviously I, I i binged watched that not maybe as good as the other two seasons but i'm i'm loving it just from a pure nostalgia perspective you know it, i think the first film came out in 1984 so i was 11 or 12 so this was just pure nostalgia they're bringing everybody back from the first two movies making a little cameo including uh, Elizabeth Shue. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. You know, the fight scenes and the training is a little bit hammy. I'm not going to lie, but just from a pure nostalgia perspective, I, I've, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed that. Really There's even a rumor that at some point Hilary Swank will make a cameo because she was in the next Karate Kid, the fourth film that nobody saw. Oof. Movies-wise, I, I've actually been very fortunate because I'm a BAFTA voter. Ooh. I've been blessed with access to all these wonderful dramas. So I couldn't name one that was my favorite yet, but the ones that I've really enjoyed are Another Round, which is a, a Danish drama with Mads Mikkelsen, directed by Thomas Vitterberg. They did The Hunt to 
together. So that that was wonderful. Oh, that is a great film, The Hunt. I love that film. Yeah, you'll love this. And Matt Mads is fantastic, absolutely fantastic, and it's a great premise. And then there's Minari, which Hamish from the last podcast from Altitude, he mentioned that that was a wonderful film, Korean movie, Korean family moves to Arkansas, US to start a family in the 80s. Nomadland, which I'm confident will and already has won major awards at the festivals. I think Frances McDormand's fantastic. We had her in three billboards a few years ago. So she's undoubtedly going to get at least a nomination, if not another win. Beautifully directed by Chloe Zhao, who did The Rider. So she's actually doing the next upcoming Marvel film, The Eternals. So she's about to explore load onto the Hollywood scene. Mm -hmm. And then I just saw One Night in Miami, which completely blew me away. I did not expect to uh, enjoy that as much as I did. This is a fictional account of one night with four major personalities, Muhammad Ali um, or Cassius Clay, as he was known at that point, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke and Jim Brown. And it's directed by Regina King who has done many great movies. She was also in Miss Congeniality too. But she did a great job directing this movie. It's clearly adapted from a play and it's it's incredible. It's really educational, really inspirational about the movements and culture upheaval in the 60s. So that has just got a five-star review in Empire. Um, that was great. But the one I actually am going to put above everything else at the moment was the only film that I had never heard of. It was the only film that I'd, I'd not seen or read anything about and it was called The Dig. And it's a, actually, incredibly, it's a Netflix production that comes on Netflix Jan 29. It's a historical British drama around the historical excavation in Suffolk on the cusp of World War II. It's Rafe Fiennes, Kerry Mulligan, Lily James, amongst other many great actors. And it just completely drew me in. Com really emotional, really passionate, and I really recommend it. Amazing. Nice. Yeah. So this week, I watched both seasons of Afterlife on Netflix, the Ricky Gervais Series. Oh yeah. I don't know if I've been reluctant because I wasn't a fan of Derek. I didn't like that at all. But it's great, full of people you recognise in smaller roles. But it just it works, and the premise of it, him being not caring after the loss of his wife, not caring about how he's perceived by people, and just saying it like it is, is hysterical at points. So yeah, recommend that. Also, which again, it's not a great film, but I really enjoyed it. But probably because it's Richard Dreyfuss, and I think he's an acting god. I watched a film called Astronaut from a few years ago, where he's 80-year-old man who wins a lottery to be a passenger in one of the public space flights. It's just the story of him having lost his wife again. It's beautifully played by Dreyfus. Not a fantastic movie, but Astronaut, which is on Sky. And finally on Sky, it's on the Sky Documentaries channel. And again, you should definitely watch this because it, it's so open and candid. You cannot kill David Arquette. Oh. So, <laughs> is, it, is it about his wrestling? So David Arquette, a few years ago, when WCW existed as a wrestling franchise, David Arquette was sort of on the rise. He was His name was up there because of the first couple of Scream films. They brought him in as a token Hollywood person, and ultimately they put the world championship belt around his waist. He, he won it in the storyline, which was resented by the majority of the wrestling community, both wrestlers and fans. It's a gimmick that didn't need to happen. And it was in, in his, basically his career as an actor, and it just generally in life, fell apart afterwards because of the negativity. He oh. switched to drugs and alcohol. Hence, he sort of dropped out of the limelight. His, his star waned. And, and this is an unbelievably candid documentary about him 
wanting redemption from both the wrestling fans and wrestlers by taking up wrestling professionally and taking it seriously. But I mean, the man is bonkers. I mean, he's, he's generally got issues, and which he freely admits there's a really quite disturbing sequence where he's clinically put on ketamine. It's really quite frightening. But then it follows him on his journey as he goes to these really backwater wrestling places to learn how to wrestle, goes down to Mexico to the luchadors and, and learns to do the stuff with them. And it's about him wanting to gain some level of respect from wrestling fans because it's it's his one real love. He loves wrestling. And that's the reason he agreed to do it in the first place back in the mm. day and, and just got obviously got bitten by the backlash. An amazing documentary and I, I was blown away by it. I really was. I thoroughly recommend it. So yeah, you cannot kill David Arquette. It's on Skybox <laughs> at the moment. That's a great title. Hammond, what have you been watching? So watched a whole bunch, but there are two films that I want to focus on that I really, really enjoyed. They're definitely going to stick with me for a while. Firstly, from 2019, uh, there's a film called One Way to Denmark, or in some places, it's just called Denmark, and it's available on Sky Cinema. So if you've not heard of this, it stars Rafe Spall as a Welshman from a very small village, living in a terrible house, down on his luck, he can't get work, he can no longer claim benefits, and he's all but given up on life. And he accidentally comes across a, a YouTube video about the best prisons in the world and where prisoners are treated the best. <laughs> And therefore, he decides to make his way illegally to Denmark in an attempt to go to prison to make his life better. This is sad in places, funny in others, but ultimately, it's just a really nice, uplifting story, which I think is what we need at this moment in time. And I love Rafe Spall. I think he's hilarious. His Welsh accent in Denmark, a little dodgy, but he gets away with it. Just some beautiful scenery of like the Danish coast. That sounds great. Yeah, very interesting. I just feel Ralph Spall just isn't in enough. And when he is in things, he's in bad films and he's playing a villain. <laughs> a film that blew my tiny little mind, again from 2019, and that's Midsummer, oh, yeah. uh, which is available on yes. Amazon Prime. Holy moly, what a film this is. This, to me, almost completely redefines the horror genre. No jump scares, a real slow burner, but it put me on edge for the longest time. You begin to fall into the minds of the characters and wonder what's real, what isn't, and it pulls you towards a really gruesome climax. And it left me wondering whether a traditional horror fan would like this or not. I don't know what your guys' thoughts on this are. But I thought it was fantastic. It's unlike anything I've seen for a very, very long time. Very uncomfortable to watch. It was. I was going to a Finnish festival after watching that movie. And so, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, I was a little bit nervous. Lots of beautiful blonde women, maybe some drugs. And yeah, it was uh, terrifying. So yeah, I think the director's other movie... What was the other film that he did? Hereditary. That was also very disturbing. I mean, after that film, I never wanted to get stoned ever again. After <laughs> watching Midsummer, if that didn't scare you, then, you know, that's enough to put you off drugs for life. So, but yeah. It was a remarkable film, and I'm intrigued to see what the director does next. Yeah, for sure. Nice one. Okay, so I caught up with a film from last year called Little Joe. It's directed by Jessica Hauser, stars Ben Whishaw and Emily Beecham. Basically, it's a group of scientists with an alarming amount of cake, because for some reason in this laboratory where they're messing with plant genomes, they're always eating pastries. They're just stuffing their face with cakes as they're like pontificating on the morals on whether or not they should proceed with this experiment that sort of goes wrong very quickly. It's sort of a, a twist on Invasions of Body Snatchers. Day of the Triffids doesn't really expand beyond that, but it's very well executed. The colour palette contrast levels are boosted to the max, so everything really pops off the screen. And there's a very Scandinavian feel to the approach. Hauser, the way she directed it, it just feels like it was shot on an IKEA showroom. It's just very sort of <laughs> clean, very clean and angular. It's really good. If you, if you get a chance to catch up with it, it's good. Breen, I've got a bone to pick with you, mate. I oh, watched... <laughs> As always. I, I, <laughs> I watched Personal Shopper from 2016 All right, yeah, yeah. on your recommendation, and that's All it, I mate. Said her performance <laughs> was better than her other performances. That's all I said. She is good. 
But that is about the only sort of merit the film has to offer. It's very weird. Are we talking about, is it Kirsten Stewart? Who, who's in that? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So essentially, she plays a medium who's trying to communicate with her dead brother. And it's done by Oliver Asavas, who did Clouds of St. Maria, which I fucking loved Clouds of St. Maria. I thought that was a fantastic film with Juliet Binoche. But in this, it's just a genre mashup just gone horribly wrong. I think like John Ho, someone, the director of Parasite, would have done a much better job because he understands genres. The problem with this is it doesn't really know what it wants to be. So it has full on CGI ghosty scares, but then it has an entire sequence where she just gets on the Channel Tunnel Eurostar and it's just her texting someone. It's very unbalanced and odd and I would not recommend it. And then finally, I watched from 2012, and I can't believe I hadn't seen this before, Marion Cotillard and Matta Sonhart, Rust and Bone, 2012. Oh yeah. What yeah. a water film. Absolutely sensational, intimate portrait anchored by these these two amazing performances. But you'll never guess what. Sconehearts plays a hulking emotional withdrawn fighter who turns out to have a heart of gold after all. We've <laughs> 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 seen it do it many times before. I mean Bullhead, which is a film that we've covered uh, before, and, and Disorder as well, the French film from 2016, I think. He's he's playing this quite a lot, and I'm worried he's going to get typecast, but he is amazing, so I guess it doesn't really matter when he's this good. Fantastic. Thank you all. Some good stuff in there. Let's all go to the lobby. lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Get so on to our regular feature then and probably a feature that is aging Ben as the weeks go on and it's the box office refund where we attempt to find something <laughs> anything there must be something anything. Out there. yeah so we're just going to skip the top five because that what's the point <laughs> let's dive straight into and this is a rumor at the moment so we maybe we should leave a pause here for the inevitable announcement that's going to come whilst i'm editing the episode so the everything's bullshit klaxon is sounding once again for 2020 slash 2021 as yes shortly after we recorded the pod this week we got the news officially from mgm universal that no time to die it's been delayed once again a third time to the 8th of october 2021 not surprised by this but any hot takes from you guys Wow. <laughs> I wish you could see Paul's face speak. It just speaks volumes. I understand the business reasons for it. And obviously, we're still sadly in the midst of lockdown three, and mm. they're not even reviewing it until the 15th of February. I don't know if it's just because it's happened again that it's just misery upon misery. <laughs> it's just so frustrating. I want this film to come out because I want the cinemas to be open and I want audiences to come in. Mm. They are in a really safe environment, which cinemas are. They're one of the safest environments you, you go to during that period when we were open. I'm trying to be philosophical and hopeful. I think when we get to that point in the year, later in the year, a huge back catalogue of films that were due to come out we should be in a much better place and we'll have a blockbuster film every single week for people to come and watch and people will start coming back through the doors but it's just frustrating mm. yeah i mean it's frustrating for everybody cinema managers and film fans alike part of me hopes that it's just not dog shit they don't want to put it out just because it's terrible and it's like let's just keep pushing it and, and hope for the best on the cine world website they've just released dates for things right up until 2028 i don't know if you guys have seen this yeah i have seen that yeah. Yeah. so we're looking i mean even at march when we're starting at things like nomad land and one of your picks paul the whatever it's called zendaya and the 15 shots or whatever it's called <laughs> Shatsu and the massage from hell or whatever it's called yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's the problem I don't know. I mean, um, I just I just had a walk through Ashford Town this morning, and it's it's desolate. There's nobody out. Nobody's leaving the house. The vaccine isn't rolling out fast enough. This new virus is spreading fast. It is deadlier than before. 
I, I don't think things are going to move until summer. So I think Bond is the right thing. Push it to October. And then hopefully, hopefully the world will be in a much better place for people to sit next to each other in cinemas and, and enjoy Bond. It's a kick in the teeth every time it gets pushed, but it's just no surprise anymore, is it? I think you're absolutely right. I think this time, more than any other time, it is the right thing to do, quite frankly, because as you guys have pointed out, I think the vaccine in the UK is rolling out quicker than it is in the entire world, but it's still not quick enough to realistically have everything back to normal by summer. I think people were under the impression that as soon as it struck midnight, on, on the 31st of 2020, that's everything would be fixed. <laughs> it was completely unrealistic. I think it, we all had to, uh, you know, we weren't going to really be back on our feet until the last quarter of this year. I mean, Glastonbury's just been cancelled again the second year in a row. Got to be realistic here. And I think this is the right call. What I am finding a bit of a, a spit in the face is, if that's a phrase, I don't know if that is, <laughs> other studios were just waiting for, for them to make this announcement. And as soon as it happened, straight away, Sony Pictures is right, right, yeah, we're pushing back Peter Rabbit 2. Ghostbusters, Morbius, they're all being pushed back. And then, yeah, Paramount pushed back Quiet Place 2 as well. So it's like they were just wait again. Bond's gone first, and then everyone else is just going to slide back their dates. I think Disney also slid back The King's Man, which was, we spoke about on the Christmas pod. We knew that wasn't going to come out in, in March. So unsurprising, last night in Soho, again, has been pushed back to October. Like, everything has just been been pushed back so the only things we've really got coming out now in march and, and through the summer are the the warner slate which obviously will stick in place because of the hgo max deal i think everything else is just is up for up for debate yeah depressing but i think this time understandable raya and the last dragon is still slated for mid-march but that's coming out on disney plus at the same time yeah there you go let's hope boss baby family business sticks on the 26th of march we all want to watch this, right? Mate, that, that and Godzilla. Can't wait. Very excited. With that breaking news out of the way, it's now time to transition seamlessly back into the regular news section. This is something that broke yesterday in the movie news. So this is in the UK, more than 40 key figures from the film industry, including yeah. Steve McQueen, Christopher Nolan, have released a letter to the government. The cinema stands on the edge of an abyss. So this is essentially a, a rallying cry from prominent figures in uh, America and the UK, just imploring the government to give some funding, not only to the smaller cinema chains, but actually to the bigger ones, because they are in some real trouble at the moment. They're saying, we recognise the support that the government has already been able to provide, but we fear that this will not be enough. Yes, yeah, so this is really good. Again, it's it's the prominent figures that we've, we've spoken about before, really just sort of giving a rallying cry to make sure that there is still a cinema industry to return to when the cinema doors are opened again. Andy, you mentioned that obviously in Finland, Finn Kino are still, I mean, only operating 20% of the cinemas. I mean, what's what's the uptake like? Are people going out? Are people watching films? Well, it's, it's not the major cities. It's the smaller places that are still open. They've got 16 cinemas, so just three are open, and that's where they've got 20% occupancies. The rest were 10%, which meant the cinemas couldn't effectively afford to open. Mm. I think the great thing is here, there's a strong element of local product, so Finnish films, local language, and actually the Scandinavian languages as well. So thankfully, they're not quite as reliant on English language Hollywood movies. So they've not suffered as much. They've suffered, but not as much comparably, say, as the UK. But they're opening, you know, they're open, mm. they're limping along, presumably making minimal profit but one assumes it's just ticking along until obviously the tide turns and things get better again sure and finally legendary pictures and warner brothers so we were talking about this last week i think breen brought this up that hbo max have reached a deal with legendary pictures regarding godzilla versus kong and it's so good that they're bringing the release forward from may to march 26 so we're going to get a chance to watch that cinematic masterpiece that i'm sure we're all very exciting you can't see the feed now but we're all wearing godzilla versus kong t-shirts <laughs> 
<laughs> we're so excited we can't wait we cannot wait i know i watched the last godzilla film and it was pretty shocking to be it honest was. But yeah it was it, i thought it was a good trailer but it just just incredibly terrible terrible mm. What this means, though, is perhaps this is a precursor to them potentially reaching a deal on Dune later on in October. Oh, God, I hope so. Regarding the HBO Max deal, what's your sort of take on it? Well, look, I've, I've worked on both sides of the table, exhibition and distribution. And, you know, whilst it's very much reliance on one another it's a business at the end of the day. And, you know, everyone's got individual segmented numbers, budgets that they have to reach and solutions present themselves. And there are no clear cut answers right now. You know, just delaying everything, kicking it down the road. Is that the answer? Maybe for the biggest films. But a lot of those movies that they're talked about are mid-range movies. They lose money theatrically. You spend millions making them, millions marketing them. They don't always perform for good reason. So sometimes it's a bit of an out. It's just a shame that they have to package it up with some premium content like Dune or a Baz Luhrmann film Elvis or the next Suicide Squad, which arguably will have taken a lot of money at the cinemas. But I don't think it's there yet. We're just reading the top line. We don't know everything about the deals yet. So I don't know, but it's there's no clear-cut answer really. And, you know, whatever keeps the machines working, the cogs turning and production continuing, and there being great content that will at some point in time play in cinemas, that's the bigger picture. That's the most important thing. If there are solutions in this interim period that offer ways out to not lose millions, then it's got to be taken. You know, it's not a charity. It is a business. And if if you go under, then there won't be any more movies, full stop, Mm. at least not on the production levels that you need in cinemas. So it's a time for experimentation. But I think if every studio is doing something a little bit different, and there's something to be learned from each of those strategies, then all the better for it. And this whole thing is is just basically evolutionized everything where we were going in the next three, four, five years anyway, whether it's Windows, content suppliers. So it's, it's just increased the frequency of where we were heading anyway, I think. But it would be a crime for some of those films not to get a cinema release. And I think we all know that. And so do the filmmakers. And I think so do Warner Brothers. Yeah, nice. Well put. My name is HBO Max. Desmus Meridius. Father to a murdered film industry. And I will stream Wonder Woman in this life or the next. So it's now time to officially turn a spotlight on our guest. Andy is a theatrical sales professional with over 30 years experience across exhibition and distribution, leading cinema programming, management, strategy, and business development. Throughout his career, he has worked on some of the biggest Hollywood, Bollywood, and independent films of all time with key industry leaders such as 20th Century Fox, Odeon, and of course, Cineworld Cinemas. He is currently a freelance theatrical distribution and cinema programming consultant based in Finland. So Andrew, what started your love of film? And do you remember the first thing you watched and maybe even the cinema that you watched it in? Yeah, look, I've I've got to put my cards on the table. And I think by saying this, it will probably answer a lot of questions. My dad was a cinema manager. So (laughs) he worked across many Odeon cinemas. Mm. So... I really was born into cinemas. Cinema managers were effectively regarded as my aunties and uncles. I was possibly even conceived in a cinema. (laughs) And my first visit, I'm told, was I was three at the Odeon Leeds, and it was for a Disney 
re-release. I think it might have been Pinocchio, but I honestly can't remember. The first memory I have as an experience was absolutely an easy one. That was Star Wars at the Odeon Peterborough. I was five, and I even have a picture of me going into the cinema. I had a shirt and tie and a jacket on at five. Uh, that's Who does that? No pants. No, I didn't. No, but shirt, tie, and a jacket. I, I mean, I, I, I was dressed up at five. Uh, it was my dad's cinema, but that was an era when cinema managers at five or six p.m. would come down in their dress suits. Mm. Can you remember? Uh, oh, Paul, you remember? That. Back me up I here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember. So um, really. that was that was the time. It was like it was a real event. It was like it was like going to the theatre. That was a wonderful film and a Fox film as well, which I inevitably ended up working for as well. So uh, amazing. Yeah. Good times. We'll come on to that in a bit. But first of all, could you just tell us how you got involved in the industry? What were your first sort of roles? Yeah, so my, my first job in cinema was in 1988. I was 15 and it was working for the Odeon Peterborough. I was a CSSA, which was a customer sales service assistant, which basically meant I was selling tickets. And yes, my dad was the GM of that cinema as well. Mm. We then moved to Ipswich so my dad could open the, the new five-screen cinema that was opening. And then in 93... When I was 20, I was posted to the Odeon in Bromley. But then I realized as you keep going in and, de and delving into the cinema business, I, I realized what I really wanted to do was work closer with the films. So after a year, I moved into the film booking department and I was responsible for the South and East for the Odeon cinemas. And the first film I reviewed the Odeon booking department was Major League Two. Uh, <laughs> the memorable film was that. So then... After nine years working with Odeon, I then moved into film distribution for the first time, working as a sales manager for an independent company called First Independent Films. That was run by the Myers family. Do we have time for a very quick story? Of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. Go. Okay, so when I was working as a booker, one of the first films I booked at the Odeon Bogner Regis was a film called Halloween, uh, which I was a big fan of John Carpenter. So when I, when I looked down the schedule of who the distributor was, first independent name, Myers, well, that's, <laughs> it's great. That's, that's a little bit odd, phoned the number up, and the phone is answered by someone called Michael Myers, which for those of you that aren't aware, is the murderous psychotic killer in the film Halloween. And here I am booking Halloween with Michael Myers. He says to me, oh, are you a fan of horror? And I said, ah, yes, absolutely. And he says, well, I've, I've got tickets to the premiere of In the Mouth of Madness with John Carpenter attending. Do you want to come along? I'm like, yeah, I've been in this job a couple of weeks. Who do I have to kill? Absolutely. So I go along. And after the film, we go into this uh, private green room-esque kind of thing, meet John Carpenter. Wow. And John Carpenter and Michael Myers obviously know each other very well. And then John Carpenter tells me a story. He says, do, do you know the story behind uh, my relationship with Michael? And I said, well, no, I understand there's something there with Halloween, I'm assuming. He goes, well, absolutely. See, he had a film called Assault on Precinct 13. It opened in the States and flopped. And Michael picked up the rights for it in the UK and distributed it to some critical and commercial acclaim. So much so that it then got reissued in the US and actually did quite well and landed John Carpenter's next job, Halloween. So... As a thank you, he wrote into the script the ghoul to be called Michael Myers. Nice. <laughs> Isn't That's that brilliant. awesome? Brilliant. That is amazing. So, 
So I, I, those are the stories you want to hear about in Hollywood. And anyway, so I ended up going to work for uh, Martin and Michael Myers at First Independence. They, they distributed films like Dumb and Dumber, City Slickers, Mortal Kombat, those types of things. I didn't have anything as nearly as successful as those. I, I distributed in the year I was there, G.I. Jane, which was Ridley Scott, uh, Wiz Craven's Wishmaster, and we acquired a film called Cube. Have you guys seen yeah. that film, Cube? There was yeah. a couple of sequels and prequels. Anyway, after a year, I then joined in 98... At 25 years old, I moved back into exhibition for a new startup company called Cine UK, mm. which some of you are very familiar mm. with. And this, they had three cinemas at the time. They were a very aggressive, expanding company. So I went in as the head of film buying, and I was the only one there, but I was the head of the department. I mean, they only had three or four cinemas, so th there was no need to have anyone else at that point. But before you knew it, it was 2005. We had 35 cinemas. Uh, market share was at a respectable 10%. And then we acquired UGC cinemas, and then it was formed. Cineworld Cinemas, which was a total of 77 cinemas at that stage. Uh, and then I, you know, I was lucky enough to recruit some great people, including Tristian, who's been on your podcast, and even Hamish. They, they all worked for me. And, and the, the current head of film buying is Stuart. He's, he's still there, Stuart Crane. So, uh, you know, it was a real family family experience. And, and, and they're all still very dear friends now, which was a, a wonderful experience. And then I was tempted back into distribution, working for 20th Century Fox as a sales director. It was great going from Cineworld into Fox, and, and Fox were a company that just had their finger in every pie. So that, that, that was wonderful. And I was there for 11 and a half years. We, we, we did Avatar, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Greatest Showman, all the X-Men movies, Life of Pi. And, and then, of course, you know, from the Searchlight perspective, it was the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, Black Swan, Three Billboards, Grand Budapest, The Favourite. Um, you know, I'm working very closely with every exhibitor, including Picture House, including Curzon and all the multiplex operators. Yeah. Yeah, we also distributed Die Hard 5 and Stuber, but you know, we've all, <laughs> we've all got stories that we don't really talk about. So um, that, that came to the end of uh, in 2019. Nice. Awesome. Okay. So recently you've started up your own consultancy and yep. distribution business. How did that come about? And how has 2020, the pandemic, how has that sort of had an impact on your world? Well, unfortunately, due to the Disney buyout, I ended up departing. So I, I left Fox at the end of 2019. And the wife and I went traveling for a couple of months in the US. When I came back, I, I started working for a tech company called um, Gower Street. Uh, I was just consulting for them. They're a service that provide um, complex dating software, establishing best release date scenarios, etc. That was like, um, you know, one or two days a week. So I thought I'll put together all of my strengths. And I thought, well, I, I you know, I, I, I love the industry, I should do something in distribution. So I thought, you know, where, where is there still a market that is relatively untapped, or there's still room for growth? So I figured I'll, I'll go for the diaspora audience, which is cheap to market, is still relatively untapped. And, and that's the sort of pockets, the communities of people that are living in the UK speaking different languages, whether it's Indian, Polish, Turkish, Greek, etc. So mm. I, I was I was starting that off as, as a potential. But then as, as soon as, you know, things were just about on the cusp of maybe starting to move, of course, the pandemic happened. And so uh, everything was put on the back burner. The last two months of building up relationships kind of 
were all put on hold. And so like everyone else, I, I just had to sort of sit back and wait because I didn't have any sort of contracts. I was any consulting. So I, I wasn't entitled to any furlough. It, it's been tough. I applied for um, various jobs in the industry still because there was no way I was going to get a real job. I, I wanted to stay in the industry and, and, and work my passion. So I was in the running for something in Mexico, which was a little bit crazy. I, I, I showed my wife traffic and man on fire and she was still interested. So I thought, okay, okay, this is, well, we can do this. So I, I, I had uh, various meetings. It was all looking really good. It was working for one of the studios over there. Do not speak Spanish. So I promised myself, right, I'm going to get on Duolingo and I'm going to start speaking Spanish. But then of course, like with so many businesses, everything was just put on hold and frozen. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and then that was it. I am still learning Spanish. That That's the one good thing that came out of that. I've been on Duolingo now for 200 nine days nice consecutively keep the street but I, i've been doing it about half an hour every day i attended various university zoom calls that were studying film studies mm. or production or finance in production both in finland and in london all on zoom calls and then um I, I went into the running for something else, which literally a couple of weeks ago, I just got the green light on so bizarrely i'm going back into exhibition working for Finkino Cinemas, who are owned and operated by Odeon. <laughs> uh, so it's like wow this is this is really circular mm. um so so february the first it's like a film specialist title it's in the booking department but uh, i'm i'm psyched I'm, I'm so excited just to be going back amazing you know i, I money was never the driver it was just always working on things that I loved and working with films. And, and, and obviously through that, it's like traveling. You just meet all these other wonderful people that have the same common interest and passion as you do. So yeah, I, I can't wait to do that. So we always like to ask this of our guests. So it can be somewhat controversial because people don't necessarily agree mm. with it as a, as a category. But we wondered if you had a guilty pleasure, a film that you like that most people tend to shy away from? It's, it's a really hard question because I think over time you eventually do find people that do like those crazy choices that you have. Like the original Dune, I, I really didn't mind the original Dune. I saw that in the cinemas at 11 and I thought it was wildly ambitious. A lot of people don't like that. Even the director distanced himself and made it an Alan Smithy movie for a period of time. But I think my, my guilty pleasure to the point of embarrassment is I do tend to like secretly YA or chick flicks, as you might call them. So um, I, you know, I loved the original Twilight, not the Paul Newman version, the original Twilight in the franchise with uh, Rob Patterson and Kristen Stewart. You know, I, I love Riverdale. I watch Riverdale on Netflix. It's all, it's all for, you know, it's all for work. I do it. <laughs> I think it's important to have a view of everything that we distribute. I went to watch uh, Every Day and Five Feet Apart in the cinema. And I swear to God, I think I was the only person over 25. I was certainly the only male heterosexual in that screen. I think I was sat next to what must have been a five or six-year-old little girl. I mean, people probably had security in the back looking at me, just checking. It was embarrassing. But I love that. I love them. I don't know why. I, I, I just guess that, you know, you, you, you revert back to teen romance and love for the first time so yeah i, I don't usually say that out loud i, li I like a good cry so that, you definitely should i should have gone major, major league major league two yeah not even major league it was major league two yeah <laughs> Hey kids, how would you like to hear this on the street instead of the great show you came to see? Honest, honest, 
please cooperate and do your part in keeping this theater quiet and, and, and enjoy. Some adults and kids to pay admission to enjoy the show. Remember, how you treat this. So it's on to our in-review section. And Christ on a bike, did I watch these two in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah, so for this podcast, we are reviewing two new films that came out, well, one's last year, but on the cusp in December 25th, and one that came out this year. So we'll start off with Sylvie's Love. Tell me about this new boy at the store. Hey, what's your favorite song in this? You don't know what love is. I am not answering that. <laughs> is he cute? I didn't really notice that much. My band's playing tonight at nine, if you want to come. I've never met a girl who knows as much about music as you do. In television. Don't get me started. I've seen every episode of everything. This stars Tessa Thompson. Uh, so Sylvie has a summer romance with a saxophonist who takes a summer job at her father's record store in Harlem. When they reconnect years later, they discover that their feelings for each other have not faded over the years. Uh, this is written and directed by Eugene Ashey, who hasn't really done anything since 2012's Homecoming. So what did people make of this? I really enjoyed this. This looked and sounded gorgeous. The, the opening sequence of a grainy Harlem being shown to that beautiful jazz score had me hooked right from the off. It was full of cliche, but it was so full of life I could forgive that. I thought it, I thought it was great. I thought the chemistry between the, the three main characters, you know, Sylvie, the main guy I've forgotten his name, um, but also the husband. I thought that little kind of triangle was fantastically done. And at this moment in time, I think this is the movie everyone needs to see. I just thought it was wonderful. I thought it was shot beautifully. I thought the soundtrack was astonishing from start to finish film and music go together but mm. it just seems so well thought out in this film jazz isn't for everybody and i can't begin to pretend for a second that i'm a jazz fan but it was introduced so beautifully all the way through this film it was lovely i was swept along by this i was sucked into 1950s harlem and was living that world so quickly in this film so yeah great pick really enjoyed it it's interesting that you say cliche because i think that was the barrier that really prevented me from absolutely loving this film I just found it very generic in the way that it was handled. I think the leads are fantastic, Tessa Thompson, and it's Namadi Ashimunga. Yeah, they were fantastic, and I did think they had some chemistry there. But the ex-husband, for example, is just one character out of many who were very ill-defined, very cookie-cutter sort of villain, just sort of preventing Tessa Thompson from living her life for the sake of just being the villain of the piece. And the period detail... And the soundtrack, whilst absolutely amazing, and this was shot in film, you can tell it's got a real grainy feel to it. It looked and sounded fantastic, but the cliche elements of the storytelling were not enough for me to really fall for this. And I was re I went into it really wanting to get something out of it. And that sort of was a barrier to preventing me. Andrew, Paul, how did you find it? It had, a, again, that real nostalgia feel. It, it Just in terms of even the fonts they used for the titles, it felt like a movie from the 1950s. They used some stock footage from the time interspersed as the, as the links between scenes. The soundtrack was just fantastic. Performances were great, but the time jump cuts in this film, right, okay, so the, the relationship is at this stage now, they were really jarring in the context of the rest of the film because it was quite linear and all of a sudden you had these huge time jumps. But the thing I found most frustrating for the, for the film was is it, just make a decision. <laughs> God, <please. laughs> Sylvia. What are you doing? Walking home. It's late. Let me take you. No, thank you. I'm fine. Can I ask you a question? If last night was such a mistake, why are you so bent out of shape about me dancing with somebody else? Because, mistake or not, when a girl is kissed by a guy, she'd like to think that she's the only girl that guy's been kissing. So you carrying on with 
what's-her-face doesn't make me feel very special. Well, the only reason I was carrying on with her in the first place is because of you telling me this was all a big mistake. That doesn't make me feel very special either. Either be together or don't be together. I understand that once or twice you can do that, but the amount of times this happened in the film is just, for God's sake, make a decision and get on with your life. It was almost like watching the end of Lord of the Rings with all the false endings. It was, it's just every time you got, you think, right, okay, that we're here at this point, this is how it's going to end. No, then there's another break. Mm. I, I agree with everything you all said. I, I thought it was really watchable, beautiful, looks great, well scored, well acted. It just it ticked every box, but it just didn't tick it hard enough. You know, it didn't dial up for me personally, the drama, the struggle, the romance, the music, the passion. It just wasn't enough to break out to make this to give it that wow factor. And I don't I'm not gonna compare it to La La Land. That's probably a very unfair comparison, but that film flawed me. This film, it just felt, it did feel a little bit TV for me. However, great performances. And I had I, never seen that guy before. So I did IMDb him. And, he, and he's a former all-pro NFL footballer. And he supports a couple of foundations and programs for supporting orphans and widows and students, which I thought is incredible. So you know what? Yeah, I, the both stars, I think, have got a, a really big future. Yeah, it was a, it was a great package. I'd, I'd had it recommended to me previously. So I, I did. Unfortunately, I had an expectation. And unfortunately, when you do that, it, you kind of often miss it. But um, it was a nice watch. And I'm glad you picked it out because I wouldn't have watched it otherwise. Yeah, totally. I went into it maybe with, with too much expectation. And talking about yeah. sort of the cliche elements of the film, did everyone really enjoy the absolute ripoff of Say Anything? John Cusack holding the record uh, player up. In this case, <laughs> it's him playing sax on the streets. I was like, come on, guys. <laughs> this has been done. <laughs> so moving on to our next film so this is pieces of a woman which is on netflix and was released this year martha is that you how are you Time 60 to 70 percent of these cases we rarely find a satisfactory explanation Certain things medically we just don't have answers for. Very sorry for your loss. Thank you. How is Martha? Martha's fine. She's always fine. Have you decided to go to the trial? That's the right thing to do, honey. Because you say it is. She has to pay for her incompetence. We need some justice here. No, you need. So this stars Vanessa Kirby, who suffers a heartbreaking home birth, which leaves her grappling with the profound emotional fallout, isolated from her partner and family by a chasm of grief. It's made by husband and wife Kuno Mondokuzo on directing duties, probably best known for 2014's White Gold, and written by Katie Webber. Pieces of a Woman offers unrelenting emotion as Kirby and Shia LaBeouf's characters come to terms with their loss. Quickly before we move on, unfortunately, this release has been tarnished by the fact that there are allegations against Shia LaBeouf from his former romantic partner, and yes, it's, it's a shame because his performance is really good in the film and I think it's really admirable that Netflix are doing a really good job of promoting the film but really shying away from his performance yeah. what do we make of this guys just want to say Mr Messer thank you for getting us to watch this film during a real time of trouble when people are feeling a bit down and depressed <laughs> I really needed to see a film about a baby dying at birth well uh, it was that's why you've got the balance that's why you had Sylvie's love and then this you know <laughs> But no, I mean, in terms of a, of a film, I think it's an incredibly important subject to address. And I think they did it in a really sensitive way. I thought the performances were were really sensitive, wonderful throughout, despite the, obviously the incredibly difficult subject matter and, and the depressing tone of the film naturally as a result. It was really compelling. And 
I'm glad I've seen it, but maybe now wasn't the time <laughs> because it, it did leave me in a real sort of funk for the rest of the day. I mean, I don't have children, so yeah, I'm sure it hit a lot harder. I mean, Mr. Hammond, obviously, I'm sure you'll comment on this when it, when it comes to you, but very, very worthy and a very good film. I just mm. want to cry. This was... I mean, overall, I thought it was a very good and very powerful movie. However, I almost turned this off and had to message you both to say I couldn't get through it. The opening sequence were beyond traumatic. My daughter was in bed when I watched this movie as it was quite late. And all I wanted to do for hours afterwards was just sit next to her in her bedroom and make sure that everything was okay. This hit me in places I never expected it to hit me. I think Shia LaBeouf is just racing up the charts in my mind Mm. uh, as an actor. I mean, you know, the, the personal stuff. Oh, shit. Vanessa Kirby as Martha, I thought, was fantastic. The mother, what a hateful creature she turned out to be. She has to pay for her incompetence. Is this about money? No. Is it, is it about what, what people think? It's about you. It's about you having to face this. I am and... facing this. I am facing it! I am facing this! Well, I don't think you are. But I really enjoyed her performance as said hateful creature. What I didn't, again, we, we, we've talked about, and I don't think it's necessarily lazy, it's almost spoon-feeding the audience. I mean, the, the bridge clearly used as a metaphor to represent the timeline. Yeah, I've got that in my notes. But then why, then, then why overlay yeah. the date over the top? We don't need that. You're, you're showing us everything agree. we need to see. But yeah, I, I, I thought this, this was a very good, very powerful piece of filmmaking. But yeah, it tick, ticked a lot of boxes for me, but I will not rewatch this. Mm. Andrew, how do you find it? Yeah, I went in with huge expectation. This is uh, definitely one on the BAFTA portal as well. So I, I watched it before it was on Netflix. And I'm, you know, I'm really intrigued with Vanessa Kirby. I, I discovered her on The Crown, so she'd already been in loads of things. But ever since that, she's already been in Mission Impossible. She's been in Hobbs and Shaw. But this was her first lead role that I'd certainly seen. And I thought she was magnificent. I couldn't get my head around the birth sequence. I just, I've never been so exhausted watching something like that. It was, it, it was mm-hmm. a little bit like watching the raid, but only it was giving birth. It was, <laughs> it was, it was relentless. And I, and I didn't realize that it was a, it was all one shot. I didn't realize that. And I didn't realize how much time had passed by because mm. I was just so drawn in. I thought I, I saw the performances were sensational. All of the people that you mentioned, uh, Shire, I, I, I agree. He's just going from strength to strength. It's just an absolute tragedy that his personal life is going to unfortunately potentially affect his career but otherwise i mean i only i only caught the peanut butter falcon recently and it just just he's fantastic but yeah so the lead performances are great you know the the impact of loss and what it has on individuals and couples i thought that was great uh, how it dealt with it was depressing but it was almost enjoyably depressing it was necessary and you you need to suffer you need to feel that struggle so i think i will be nominating vanessa kirby as i suspected i would as the best actress yeah i think my only minor criticism about the film is why is it called pieces of woman because it does feel like a bit of an even hander between charlotte Buff and vanessa kirby's yeah. character vanessa kirby internalizing that pain internalizing that emotion internalizing that, gr- internalizing that grief whereas Shia LaBeouf, complete opposite, crying, exploding, just an absolute force of a performance from him. And, and again, it is a shame that we can't really celebrate him as, mm. as, a, as, you know, as a personality. Mm. This film had so many opportunities where it could have gone down an avenue of being a bit cliche. I'm sort of talking about the earring is discovered in the car. I think other films would have had a bit more of a domestic kitchen sink approach to that subject matter and had that confrontation. But this film just sits with Vanessa Kirby. 
just sits with her in silence, internalizing that grief. And that was absolutely heartbreaking. I sat in silence as the credits for this film rolled for five minutes, just sitting with this film. And I think if people can get past the opening sequence of the 22 minutes uh, visceral sequence of the birth is absolutely horrific. But I found the moments afterwards horrible. There's a really Mm. close proximity to the way these characters are filmed in in this. And there's an argument, a confrontation between her and her mother where it's very closely framed and it's just so uncomfortable to watch. We need some justice here. No, you need. That is what you want. That is what you need. That That is your way. That is not my way. That is what you need. Martha, if you had done it my way, you'd be holding your baby in your arms right now. You know what, you, you're ashamed. You are so ashamed of me. You're ashamed because I failed. Oh, what a disgrace. Oh, what a disgrace. I failed. This film is one of the best things I've seen recently. And again, it's like Soul that we talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I don't understand how this is getting middling reviews. Because for me, I know it's an uncomfortable experience and it's not something I've got to rush back to, especially in 2021, 2020. But it's it's amazing. It's absolutely, I don't, it's amazing. I've, I love this film. It is yeah. absolutely incredible. I said to my wife when the credits were rolling in this film, this is one of these films that as a cinema manager, you would stand in that auditorium and the audience would not move and would not make a yeah. sound minutes at the end of this film. It would captivate people would be left in shock just processing what they've just seen and that's that's the mark of a fantastic film isn't it yeah fantastic well thanks (laughs) (laughs) before we move on to the next section we wanted to announce the launch of the very first have you seen this competition that's right we want you to get the word out for our little pod and hopefully there's something in it for you as well what we want you to do is head to have you seen this on apple Podcasts. just search have you seen this on your iphone in the podcast app rate us five stars and give us a really quick glowing hopefully review it really doesn't have to be long one sentence or even one word will do once you've done this take a picture or screen grab to prove it and email it to us at seenthispod at gmail.com subject matter competition don't have an iphone don't worry you can do exactly the same on facebook that's right head to facebook.com forward slash seeing this pod click on the review tab leave a five-star review screen grab that and email it into seeing this pod at gmail.com and why should people do this glad you asked we have on offer an exciting prize the have you seen this official top five films of 2020 on blu-ray up for grabs for one lucky winner that emails in the screenshot of the review well technically speaking it's our top four films of 2020 plus guy Ritchie's the gentleman on blu-ray as one of them the 40 year old version is a netflix exclusive so we thought it's a bit cheap just to give you something you can watch on netflix and the gentleman was of course in my top five so i'm glad one of you lucky winners are getting it we will of course select one entry at random to win all five films on blu-ray and for every runner-up we will send them an exclusive have you seen this badge get reviewing and send in your screen grabs and pictures to seen this pod at gmail.com now the competition closes 2nd of march and we will announce the winner live on the 10th of march on episode 12 of the pod when i say live i mean we'll record it we'll dig names out of a hat then we'll announce it everyone will be happy we'll go home good luck guys and yeah get sending in good luck everybody i download your podcast i sync it up Time for our review spin-off questions. So inspired by Pieces of a Woman, we want to know what is your favourite continuous shot or set piece or sequence in film or TV? I was going to say for Netflix, it's the fireplace for your home. But that is that entire... (laughs) (laughs) Movies-wise, the two that bear in my mind is Birdman. I thought that, I remember that had a a fantastic sequence that just followed him around Mm. and that was incredible. And I, I I love 
martial arts and action films. So the raid films were both uh, mm-hmm. very similar like that, as were TV, Marvel's Daredevil and Punisher. Some of those sequences are only two or three minutes, but like the uh, giving birth sequence, it's just relentless. It just you feel the punch, you feel the exhaustion and the fact that it stays on them. I think that's what that shot. That's why those shots are so important um, because you, you just feel that within the character that, you know, that there has to be a moment where they literally stop and breathe. You know, you don't see that in Avengers. So yeah, I'll, I'll go with the raid and the Marvel uh, Punisher and the uh, daredevil. Nice one. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Right. So I'm going to go with 2006 children of men by Alfon Curzon. The yeah, cinematographer yeah. was Emmanuel Lubensky who did gravity and the reverend and actually Birdman as well which was already discussed. Yeah. There are a couple of continuous shots in this, but the one I'm referring to is the one of the film's climax that starts off in the streets of a dystopian Bexley Heath and follows Clive Owen as he tries to get the baby out towards the sea as he's, as he's being pursued. And the, the brilliant moment in this is the just the way that obviously it's framed. You've got the action, you've got the tense score. It all builds up to this moment when he's in the tower block and is coming down and there are two warring factions and they all stop. This miracle baby in the story, it's the first birth in 18 years. So people are just encapsulated by this this child uh, descending the stairs. It's almost godlike. It's a very sort of Christian uh, Catholic overtones to it. Uh, Yeah, it's fantastic. And, And what a film. Not one to watch now. But uh, yeah, it is incredible. <laughs> nice. Right, yeah. Goodfellas from 1990 is one of my favourite films of all time. I've lost count of the amount of times I've seen this film. And it's it's obviously the scene where Henry and Karen are on a date. They get out of the car and it follows them and tracks them all the way through the famous Copacabana to their, their newly placed seats at the front and centre of the state. Thank you, sir. All right, I'll see you later. Thanks. What are you doing? You're leaving your car? Watch, it's a car for me. It's easier than leaving it out of the garage and waiting. A lot quicker that way. You know what I mean? Huh? I like going this way. It's better than waiting in the line. <laughs> And what I really love about that scene is it essentially signifies Ray Liotta leading his new girlfriend from a very humble, simple life uh, into this new life of power and prowess. Uh, And I love the juxtaposition between the two characters. I mean, she's clearly being dizzyingly swept along by everything that's happening. And he's just greasing the wheels and throwing $100 bills into everyone he comes across his hand. A great film uh, that essentially set the benchmark for every gangster film that's dared to follow it. And, and that shot just blows me away. I could just watch that scene on a loop. Yeah, I love amazing it. choice. So anybody that knows me, and you guys won't be surprised that I will pick 1917. Paul, did you read my notes where I put an asterisk saying, this should be a feature film or TV episode that isn't a continuous shot in the first instance, i.e. 1917. <laughs> that, that sentence doesn't make sense, so I ignored it. Okay. So there are several very extended scenes in 1917. Well, the whole thing is an extended scene. Not a one one shot, the film from start to finish, like, say, Victoria. But there are extended sequences in the similar vein to Goodfellas with that scene going into the restaurant that are one shot. And the logistics alone are mind boggling. You can pick many segments, but the the night scene when he's running through and the, the flares are going over, the lighting on that is exceptional. Mm. The the very tender scene when he ducks in and 
in to avoid the Germans and has the scene with the woman and the child who isn't actually her baby. That's a, just a beautiful, well-played well played scene on its own. So, yeah, 1917, and there's a, a myriad of, of sequences throughout that movie as a continuous shot that are truly wonderful. Moving on to our second question then. So, inspired by the news that Wonder Woman 1984 is being entered into the Oscars, what for you is the most upsetting Oscar win or snub? In the 91 years, the award has been running. So this isn't a attack on 19, Wonder Woman 1984. It might be an absolutely amazing film for all we know. It just feels a bit odd that it's being entered in for pretty much all the categories. <laughs> best supporting, best actress, best director, best film mental i mean it's interesting to look back at the history of the oscars for its very long run like why do we think that the oscars get it so wrong do you think it's the benefit of hindsight or do you think it is due to the makeup of those academy members yeah i mean massive amount of politics involved i think so too charlie chaplin never won for best director alfred hitchcock stanley kubrick never won best director which makes the whole thing a bit of a mockery citizen kane arguably Mm. i don't necessarily agree but is regarded as one of the best made films of all time. It's a Wonderful Life, Saving Private Ryan all lost out. So it does make you think, I mean, I I think everyone that gets nominated, they're all deserved. But how do you, when it comes to art, how do you choose one piece over another? I mean, it's crazy. It it, it is a bit of a mockery. And I think a lot of the the time, I think I've been in the business so long that every time the awards come up, I tend to find myself championing the film that is going to benefit my company, that my company has... Put in the spend and the time and the commitment and the publicity to to try and push this film the best it can. Or, or as a cinema operator, you, you you're hoping for the film that's just about to open gets the awards because it will benefit the most commercially. So it's quite hard. I'd say I was gutted when Stallone. I was hoping Stallone was going to win for best support for Creed, just because I've got. I know you guys have spoken about Rocky, but just because I love Rocky and I think I owe that guy in the Rocky soundtrack so much for getting me into a gym that I. I just felt compelled that he deserves that. That character has been around. There's been so many sequels, prequels, and spin-offs that he, he deserved it. And it went to Mark Rylance, who, of course, Fox were, were, were delighted with because it was for our own Bridge of Spies. So I was kind of happy with that. It was win-win. Mm. But it's a tough question, and, and it's a personal taste, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Do you know what film beat uh, Citizen Kane in 1942 of the Oscars? I, I, no, and I bet nobody That's does it. apart from you. That's exactly my point. <laughs> How green was yeah, no, exactly. How green was my valley i've never even heard of that film no yeah it's crazy yeah i think it as uh, paul you're absolutely right it is a large it largely to do with just the makeup of the members Uh, currently the academy voting members are made up of seven thousand, and of that only half are active filmmakers and by active filmmakers they just mean filmmakers who have made something in the last 10 years notoriously the joke was always they were you know they're all old white men and and obviously the rendition that BAFTA's gone through significant movements to change and amplify that now the Oscars have as well obviously in 2015 we had the Oscars so white campaign which helped things a bit but still at the moment it's 84% white and 68% male as of 2020, the Academy board members. So mm. it's not it's not great. Sci-fi, blockbusters, fantasy, comedy, crucially, is always, always overlooked and it always really upsets yeah. me. But I think the biggest, the biggest sort of controversy for me was the 2005 Best Picture winner category. The best motion picture of the year. It all comes down to these five wonderful films. The nominees are... Brokeback Mountain, Diana Osana, and James Seamus, producers. Capote, Caroline Barron, William Vince, and Michael O'Hoven. Crash, Paul Haggis, Kathy Schulman. Of course, producers. Good night and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> 
Brad Haslov, Munich, Kathleen Kennedy, Steven Spielberg, Barry Mendel. And the Oscar goes to Crash. Crash was nominated for six Academy Awards tonight, winning three for film editing, original screenplay, and best motion picture. Uh, yeah, yeah, shocking. Uh, it should have gone to Brokeback Mountain, but to be honest, any one of those films is better than Crash. So yeah, that's my choice. So my choice for this, uh, forgive me, I haven't got the year written down. But again, this this it was a political one when people retrospectively looking at shit, we should have given them the Oscar before now. So this was the year that Paul Newman won Best Actor for Colour of Money, yeah. the sequel to The Hustler. And Bob Hoskins did not win for Mona Lisa. Absolute disgrace. And the only reason Paul Newman won it was because they realised they shouldn't have given it to them for The Hustler all those years ago because yes. his performance whilst it's very good in Colour of Money don't get me wrong but it's not The Hustler Paul Newman's given significantly better performances than he did in Colour of Money Bob Hoskins' performance in Mona Lisa was exceptional and it was an absolute travesty that he wasn't recognised at the Oscars for that performance yes he was nominated but he should have definitely won and his name should have been up there they obviously yeah. thought Bob Hoskins still had many a year an opportunity to win and and so yeah. they thought Paul Newman doesn't it was exactly the same with Jeff Bridges when he won for Crazy Heart which again Fox yeah. Searchlight film I'm not plugging the back catalogue at all but <laughs> no reason to but no just saying it, it wasn't it wasn't Jeff Bridges' best performance but it, he had that guy deserved an Oscar. Absolutely, it's 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 very like you say. There are a lot of considerations, and and it's all about ticking boxes. Yeah, I, Goodfellas was beaten, but by Dances with Wolves, for fuck's sake, mind blowing. But I've already spoken about Goodfellas, so mm. uh, I thought I'd switch it up. And one of the you've already mentioned this, Andy. One of the biggest shockers for me was that Saving Private Ryan was overlooked mm. for Best Picture. Do you know what beat it? Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare yeah. in Love. Beat Saving Private Ryan. Yes. <laughs> Wasn't that the year that Judy, Judy, Dunch, well, Judy Dench won Best Supporting Actress for saying like yes. five yeah, words? Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Before I bring out Guns and Moses with Charlton Heston. But I know you can't say Moses. It's the artist formerly known as the Prince of Egypt. I'd like to make you aware, in case there is an emergency, we have to follow Academy Protocol, Steven Spielberg first, the rest of you on your own. Okay. And now, in the words of Sylvester Stallone, you know the drill. Here we go. The nominees, I'm here to honor five extraordinary women for their performance in a supporting role. This is very exciting. I feel like Adam, when he said to Eve, back up, I don't know how big this gets. There is nothing like a dame. The Oscar goes to Dame Judy Dent. Shakespeare in Love was a wonderful film, and it did really well. A lot of people saw it, but it it wasn't it wasn't Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, Saving Private Ryan didn't yeah. go without awards. It, it won Best Director, Cinematography, Editing, sound, but it definitely, definitely should have won Best Picture, and it definitely should have beaten fucking Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> Completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Good choice, man. The Oscars every year throw up all sorts of controversy. And quite frankly, that's why I sit up till five o'clock in the morning watching them because I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, your projectionist tonight is Eric. Eric, who has a hot, hot, thirsty job. He does very, very well. Uh, unlike you, hasn't time to check himself. Unlike you, here, all right, all right, all right, all right. Thank you.
Amazing. So it's on to our two films in review for our next episode. Oh, it's Breen's picks. I always oh. <laughs> So now I, I don't want to be depressed again. As good as film as Peace of Woman was, I we I'm gonna go completely different and we're gonna go still intense but very, very, very different vibe. So we're going to watch a Korean film on Netflix called The Call, which is a film from 2020. And we are going to watch it on Amazon Prime. Dave Franco's first film as a director called The Rental. It stars Dan Stevens and Dave Franco's wife, Alison Brie. Mercer, I think you're going to hate me and watch both of these because they both have a horror vibe okay. about them. Certainly, <laughs> certainly The Call, but so I'm hoping it's a bit more suspense rather than gore. But those titles that I'm going to go with. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. And all that's left for me then is to pose the question. So talking of the Oscars, as we hurtle towards what I can only assume is going to be one of the most bizarre award seasons we've ever witnessed, what was the first colour film to win Best Picture at the Oscars? Uh, and that's it. Brings us to the end of the episode. Andy, all the way from Finland, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to see you and talk to you again. Paul, Ben, as always a pleasure. And for me, Stay safe, everybody. The end is in sight. There will be films in cinemas soon. Uh, thanks from me, and it's over to you guys to sign off. Oh, thank you, everyone, for inviting me along. Just want to say it's been so lovely uh, seeing you all and just having three nerds like yourselves talk about films like I do. It's uh, I was a little bit intimidated because you guys sound so great week on week. But, uh, yeah, you can edit it. You promised me you can edit it, so it sounds like I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Everybody, uh, as always thank you for listening uh, be good if you can't be good be careful please be safe be healthy hopefully we'll be having jabs in our arms very soon which means we can then have people in the cinemas take care andrew cheers for coming on mate really really great to have your your insight uh, yeah it was really lovely having you uh, to everyone's listening thank you so much for listening if any one of you listening out there is getting inaugurated i would definitely turn up <laughs> cheers and uh, we'll see you on the next episode you have been listening to Have You Seen This with Paul Breen, Ben Hammond and myself, Ben Mercer. The main theme is the Godzilla theme tune, remixed by myself, with beats supplied by Lander. Additional content for episode 9 was supplied by Ada McCaffrey and the Movie News Pedanza, a podcast you should definitely check out if you haven't already done so. Just search Movie News Pedanza in your favourite podcasting app. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed the pod and please check us out on Facebook and Instagram forward slash Seen This Pod. Seen spelled S-C-E-N-E. We're also available on Twitter, Seen This underscore pod. For views and opinions, whether they be right or wrong are those of their hosts. So we look at, I mean, even at March when we're starting at things like Nomadland and one of your picks, Paul, the whatever it's called, Zendaya and the 15 shots or whatever it's called. <laughs> Shiatsu and the Massage from Hell or whatever it's called, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the film, yeah. So the film that I was referring to is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> not, not Zendaya and the 15 Sambucas or whatever it might be. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> not even close. <laughs> <laughs>